in today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. In the aftermath of persecution, a ripple of faith is unfurling across the land. It transforms the city of Antioch into a beacon of hope. And, and from these scattered seeds of belief, a new wave of Christianity is taking root. It's penetrating the hearts of both Jew and Gentile alike. And so in this text, amidst this divine awakening, Barnabas, a beacon of encouragement, appears, fans the flames of faith, and the city thrives as a stronghold of new believers. But when a prophecy of dire famine looms and the unity and compassion of the Antioch community is put to the test, will they prevail? Well, they will with the Holy Spirit's help, and we will too this morning. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, August 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word thrives thanks to the unwavering support of listeners like you, whose prayers and contributions uphold KFUO's nearly 100-year-old radio ministry. I'm also grateful to God for the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, our generous sponsor. LHF diligently translates, publishes, and distributes Christ-faithful, Bible-centered materials around the world. And the most inspiring part? They provide these invaluable resources for free to pastors and missionaries and those who need such resources. I've told you before, but I got to brag on LHF because when I was doing some Hispanic ministry, they sent us Hispanic materials. When I went to Haiti and I needed small catechisms written in Haitian Creole, they sent me crates just for the asking. Of course, they also take donations. And you can discover more about LHF's transformative work and how you can participate in their mission by visiting them online, lhfmissions.org. Well, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning. He's a regular contributor on KFUO. I'm sure you've heard him before, but it's the first time he's been on Thy Strong Word with me as a host. It is the Reverend Joe Cox. Uh, Pastor Cox is the Director of Curriculum and Education at Lutheran High School South in St. Louis, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Cox, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, and thank you for that very warm welcome. I appreciate it. Well, Director of Curriculum and Education. Now, that's a title, but from talking with you off the air, I hear that you have many hats, or at least have had many hats over the years there. Tell us a little bit about how God's working through you and the saints there at Lutheran High School South. Sure. A uh, little bit about myself. Uh, first of all, as I've been at Lutheran High School South for 16 years now, I teach in the theology and the English departments, where I also serve as the department head for both. And then this uh, director of campus, uh, pardon me, director of curriculum uh, position is something new that was opened up so that we can be a little bit more intentional about the theological, pedagogical design of our curriculum in terms of really making sure we have this consistent Christocentric flow through our curriculum that's very much intentional. Um, we've been blessed over the decades that Lutheran High School South has been operating to have strong and faithful Christian educators who have created a uh, very excellent curriculum. But because of that, we haven't necessarily been intentional about aligning it 
because everyone was doing such an excellent job. But as we're moving towards our next stage of being excellent in Christian education, uh, that's one of the tasks that is put before me now. Well, it sounds like, uh, well, maybe a difficult job, but certainly worthwhile and worthy. You know, not on the level that you're doing it, but my doctoral work was in, uh, actually my dissertation was uh, in what I call cooperative catechesis, uh, helping equip parents to be the primary catechists in their children's lives. Um, something I'm very interested in, always trying to find ways to involve parents in the spiritual education of their children, because, I, listen, what a, my dissertation isn't earth-shattering or groundbreaking. It just speaks God's truth, which is that parents have that sacred vocation. And, and we in congregations or we at Lutheran high schools, um, I'm sure you'll, you'll readily admit, it's our job to assist parents in their great duty. And I'm glad to have faithful people like you out there um, making sure we're doing that well. Um, just as out of curiosity, in what ways do you involve parents or how are parents involved in their education at your high school? That's a great question. We are really, really blessed with the parental support that we have at Lutheran South. And I think that unfolds in a couple of ways. Number one, we've been serving the South St. Louis area for, oh, about 70 years now. And with that, we're at the point where we have literally generations of students, where one of our traditions at graduation is to have grandparent alumni and then parental alumni stand up to be recognized. And so because of that, there is this really strong connection among our constituents, among our parents, many of whom have graduated from here as well. Um, on top of that, about half of our faculty are grads from Lutheran South. And so there is a communal aspect that extends well beyond the confines of our school building and our, and our school property to the area churches that support and feed our school where those relationships connect and grow. Um, we have parents who are on campus weekly to pray for the needs of our school. Um, they are always showing their love with notes and, and goodies in the faculty room and ready to be involved uh, with their students learning in terms of feedback. Um, really, when I talk to my peers in other areas, um, whether it be in other public schools or other uh, parochial schools at times, I do feel almost a little bit of um, maybe survivor guilt, for lack of a better term, because of how secure I am in the love that our families show us and are really engaged with making Lutheran South an excellent place, not just in terms of academics, but in terms of a place where our students are nurtured in the Christian faith, where the gospel is proclaimed, um, and where parents celebrate that fact. And we really are a partnership, uh, much like you were describing in terms of your dissertation. Yeah, that partnership is so key. Uh, and I'm glad it's so just wonderful. I, I, I don't have anything else to say, except that it's wonderful to hear how the parents are supporting the, the mission that God has given you guys there. And it's so important to produce, <laughs> form, uh, well-rounded Christians who are able to meet the demand—no, demands, is that maybe the, the demand for uh, witnessing, I suppose, that our modern culture uh, is desiring. There are so many things we're up against 
And I think that we need to have well-rounded students, which is why I'm so grateful for parochial schools. Uh, we're going to talk about persecution today, which I think ties into everything we've been talking about. But before we move on, before we move on, I'd like to uh, start with prayer, but I'd like to invite you to start us with that prayer, please. Absolutely. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we enter into this study of your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit be among us, even as you have promised, to open our hearts, to open our minds to the truth of your revelation, to recognize that as we enter into the stories of our early forebears who went forward even among um, such great difficulty as this original persecution that arises among your people, that you would help us to be cognizant that their story is your story. And their story is also our story as we continue the march that was begun um, right there in those moments of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles and, and Jesus had sent them forward at his ascension. So we pray that you would empower us also as we encounter the Spirit through this word, helping us to find ways in which we can continue this story in our lives wherever we find ourselves serving you. All this we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So before we get into the text today, we're finishing up chapter 11, and we don't have a lot of text. We're focusing on Antioch and this uh, famine that was going to be uh, foretold about. But before we get into any of that text, though, maybe let's step, take a step back. And for anyone who perhaps hasn't heard the previous episode, uh, maybe if you don't mind, catch us up. Where has the early church been? What immediately preceded this? What's the context for what's going on in our text for this morning? Um, sure. And if you don't mind, I'm going to back up slightly more than that, yeah, just great. for a sense of having this overarching view of what we're looking at uh, with um, Acts. And, I, and I'm sure this has been covered in Thy Strong Word um, recently, but as a reminder to our audience that in a sense, we could argue that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is really a thesis statement for the entire book. As, as um, we were praying about Jesus sending forth the apostles, and he talks about how in 1.8, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And those three, four points that he marks really become locational barriers around which the book itself is centered. So chapters 1 through 8 are really focused on the growth of the church in Jerusalem. <clears throat> um, 9 through 12 become kind of an interesting intersection between the two ends of the book, and that's where we find ourselves today. Whereas the church in Jerusalem, the primary human character is Peter, when we get to the end and the majority of the end, second half of Acts, the primary human hero or protagonist um, is St. Paul. But in between, we have kind of this cover over where we switch from Peter being the emphasis in chapter 9 to Paul, then back to Peter in 10, and then back to 9 and 11 to Peter and then Paul, which is the transition we're making now. Um, and then we'll get Peter again, and then we'll launch into Paul, and Peter really falls into the background. And so that's an, also an interesting thing that we're going to get to in a moment, in that the focus on the church's outreach 
to the Jews in Jerusalem becomes an outreach to the entire world. And, and through St. Paul, again, uh, more precisely, the Gentiles, which becomes the thrust of, of most, not all, of the second half of the book of Acts. And so with that in mind, what we had already covered is Peter had had this great vision uh, where he realizes that God has set apart the Gentiles um, to receive his grace also. And there's a group of people within the Christian church, the circumcision party, who are, who are of the belief that one must first uh, become Jewish and hold to all of the Jewish ceremonial laws before becoming a Christian. And, and so they're very concerned that Peter would be involved with these Gentiles. And yet he comes and he explains the vision through which God um, reveals to him that, no, 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 the Gentiles are meant to be part of this church as well. Um, and and people look upon this with favor and, and finally conclude uh, that it's to the Gentiles also that God has granted the repentance that leads to life. And so that's the setup as we go into verse 19 today when we start seeing, so what happens when other people begin to minister to the Gentiles as they're spreading out from the Jerusalem part of Acts 1-8 into uh, Judea and Samaria and the areas that start moving into uh, the ends of the earth as we get into Phoenicia and Antioch. And it's this scattering because of the persecution, of course, that gives them this opportunity to proclaim to people who, whom they may have never reached before. I, I, the reason I bring that up, and I've mentioned it a couple times as we're going through Acts, because that seems to be the theme, right? Uh, there's this proclamation to the whole world. The church is following Jesus' command to proclaim the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. But in many ways, they're, they're not—I mean, they're doing it voluntarily, but they're also being pushed by the Holy Spirit, and they're being pushed because of the circumstances around the persecution that they're experiencing. And, and so I think that as we consider these texts and we try to connect them to our lives today, I think one of those big connections is just that—persecution. Not that Christians are experiencing, at least in our country, a great deal of persecution. We're certainly experiencing uh, a time when Christianity is no longer favored by the culture, lots of pushback, and certainly a lot of resistance to our worldview, uh, and it's, it's moving toward persecution. But I, I think that we can look at these texts and see them in a new light. No longer are we just saying, oh, this is the history of the early church, but now we see what Christians did when they were in the same situation that we are starting to find ourselves in today. Um, and I think that's another important thing that we should remember. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> it's not that the Christians stood by and said, okay, strike me down. Notice that they do move for the purpose of safety geographically, but they do not move from the centrality of the proclamation of Jesus Christ in their lives. That as they moved to escape this persecution that had erupted at the hands of Saul um, and others of his party, they take the gospel with them and they do not hide who they are, but rather they continue to proclaim Jesus in spite of the fear and the dangers which they're attempting to escape. Let's talk a little bit about the first couple of verses. I'm going to read them now, verses 19 and 20. 
It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. All right, pausing there, why this division? You know, I mean, we, 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 as we look through the scriptures, we see Christ himself saying that he's come first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then we see Paul later on is going to have this very specific uh, role of reaching out to Gentiles. Uh, but even here we see this struggle, and you, you talked about the circumcision party, but we have people who are proclaiming to everyone but no one but Jews, and then we have a couple of folks uh, I guess in the wake of even the Greeks complaining because their widows are being neglected, you have now people intentionally reaching out to the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking um, Christian, well, people hopefully becoming Christians, and they're proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Uh, why this division? Why do we see? It just seems so, I guess, different to our our modern American ears that well, the gospel's for everybody, but. Early on, there's this there's this sort of distinct division between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, how do we explain that to people who might have questions about it? Yeah, and I think it's hard, in a sense, with the few verses that we have that really speak to this issue. We have to try as best as possible to place ourselves into uh, the mindset of these first century Jewish Christians. And I want to emphasize that part because these are first-generation Christians, people who have grown up um, presumably as faithful Jews who had been taught that it was a matter of ceremonial righteousness that Jews do not mix with Gentiles, with non-Jews, with the Hellenists or the, or the Greeks, the Greek speakers. And so it's very much part of of how they have been raised. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try a little bit of an analogy, and this may be a complete and utter fail, and, and I apologize if so, but I am old enough that I still have ingrained in my mind um, that when I was a child, the only person you saw wearing a tattoo uh, was thought to be a dangerous person. Uh, tattoo was a symbol of antisocial behavior. At least that's uh, that was how I was raised in my community. And while to this day I'm still not a fan of tattoos, and I recognize uh, that it is something uh, that has transcended a means of, of celebrating antisocial sentiments on the person wearing them, I still have to catch myself and remind myself that the way things were when I was a child isn't the way things are today. And so once again, I, I think these Jews are kind of like that, that there is a certain amount of timidity on their part. There's a certain amount of enculturation that we just don't speak to these people. Um, and not only that, but as they're spreading forward, who do you go to? Well, you go to the areas that are predominantly Jewish of your people. They are the people who are most likely to receive you. And so there is either directly or indirectly, indirectly 
a lot of social impetus to not even think necessarily about going straight to the Greeks, but rather it becomes very natural to go to the Jews. And, and this is a practice that St. Paul will demonstrate through the rest uh, of the book of Acts as well, that he would first go to the Jews and speak in the synagogue to any given um, city that he visits, and then he would speak to the Gentiles. Now, having said that, I think it's interesting that verse 20 even tells us who the specific people are who go to speak to the Hellenists. And notice that they are people, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Uh, these are not predominantly Jewish areas. Cyprus is an island off the coast. And so what it almost seems as though, whether they be Jews from those areas, where they were already a sense of a minority, or even maybe some early Greeks who had encountered the gospel, there were those first adopters of this um, transcultural migration, if you will, who first begin speaking to the Hellenists. You said earlier it was natural for them to go to the Jews. I, I think about this a lot because when we read the New Testament, even growing up, I grew, I've always been a Christian, not always a Lutheran, but I've always grew, I grew up in a Christian household. Um, but like many other Christians, my exposure to the Scriptures was predominantly from the New Testament. And it really wasn't until later I was an adult and I was starting to take my faith very seriously and studying, but I wasn't catechized as a Lutheran, so I didn't have some of those advantages that maybe the, even the students at your school do. But I, you miss so much if you don't know um, the history of God's activity as revealed in the Old Testament. It, the things really don't make any sense, which, by the way, I think is another piece of evidence that the Holy Spirit is the one who works faith in the hearts of people, because a lot of people come to faith in Jesus without even understanding what he is as a Jewish Messiah. Uh, so the Holy Spirit's doing his work. That's not the problem. But I do think that if we were going to witness to people uh, and we were in their shoes, it makes sense to go to Jews so that we can tell them the Messiah has come. Because to go to Greeks, we'd have to start at the very, very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so I think that is another reason, besides cultural and, and social faux pas and the things that you mentioned, which are important, I think that's something we resonate with. I mean, how often do we sort of tongue-in-cheek say, you know, Lutheran evangelism, unfortunately, is about going out and finding Lutherans wherever they may be, <laughs> instead of going out and making disciples for Christ. Uh, and I think that could be applied to every denomination. But the reason why is it's it's so much easier to say, go to a person who grew up Baptist and bring them into the Lutheran understanding of the scriptures. Uh but it's a lot harder to start with someone who is either hostile to the faith or hasn't even heard of it at all and, and start at the beginning. Um, so we see here the people who are going to the Greeks are fellow Greeks or fellow Hellenists. Um, we, we sort of have this natural inclination to go to people with whom we have something in common, I guess. And, but the Lord uses that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you're right about it's easier to talk to people with whom we have more um, in relationship and in context. And so very much it becomes much more natural to say um, in the context of a worshiping congregation who's looking for the Messiah to say, hey, I've found the Messiah. 
than it is to say, hey, you need the Messiah, and oh, by the way, this is what a Messiah is. Right. Well, and that's why I think it's so important that you, you know, folks out there, I, I would assume are predominantly Lutheran if they're listening to this program, but even if you're not, it's important that you belong to a community of believers who takes the whole Scripture seriously, and pastors who proclaim the what we call the whole counsel of God, Old Testament and New Testament. So I, I see that here. I think we're at such a disadvantage, which is, again, to reiterate why I'm grateful the Holy Spirit is the one who works faith, and you don't have to convince people of belief. But as we grow in our faith and being in the Word, it's just, I don't know, it's just so important that we study all of this. And I just that's what I see on the ground here. I see... Jews going to Jews, Gentiles are frustrated. We you know we've had the incident already where their their widows and orphans are being neglected or whatever. And now we have them saying, "Well, we're going to go and we're going to proclaim Jesus to the people whom we know." And the Lord's blessing this. If we move on to the next verse, it says, "And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord." The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Uh, we're going to pause there at the end of verse 25. So the Lord's blessing their efforts. People are coming to faith in droves, which uh, is always encouraging as we read this to see the Holy Spirit working, but also sort of discouraging because uh, how often do we not see that in our modern-day society and we long for it? Uh, but it says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. Could you explain a little bit for the folks, what's the the structure of this early church? I mean, uh, are, are the people in Jerusalem in charge? How might we explain this to someone? Yeah, um, it's interesting because I think we're going to get a snapshot of what the structure of Jerusalem looks like in just another couple of chapters when we get to the Council of Jerusalem. But as far as the book of Acts has been um, structured, Peter has been the main spokesperson in Jerusalem. However, what we find out, uh, again, from the Council of Jerusalem, and I don't want to give steal too much away from uh, the guest who's following me when you get to chapter 12, uh, but you have James who has kind of rises to the level of being the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, as the church goes through time and, and things become more concrete and codified in terms of structure. Um, people are going to argue the first the first bishop of Jerusalem, etc. Um, but you definitely have a sense, even uh, before this, Barnabas had taken Paul to the apostles um, when he was first preaching. The apostles were thinking it was kind of a setup, and so they weren't interested in meeting with Paul, thinking it was just a trap. Um, so it seems like there's for lack of making using our political terminology, and I, and I hate descending into that, but but somewhat of a representative democracy among the apostles. Everybody was just kind of serving each other um, rather than having a real strong hierarchical structure. 
and when these men move into leadership, whether it be Paul, uh, Peter or James, it does seem to be very organic, um, which I would attribute to just simply the movement of the Holy Spirit. Now, I also think it's interesting, uh, with the section we've just read, you do have, in a sense, a bookend. And there's, there's actually two bookends happening here. First of all, we had already had Peter in Jerusalem repeating his events at Cornelius's house with, I think, a much overlooked um, passage in that the response at Cornelius' house is that um, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and Peter compares it to um, Pentecost. Verse uh, 46, for example, of chapter 10, and he comes back to 11, uh, as they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Well, remember Acts chapter 2, you've got Pentecost followed by that great ingathering of the church uh, where more than 5,000 are added to the number. And so we have a similar response happening here. Here's our great gathering, and it seems to be primarily among the Gentiles rather than the Jews at this point, not as a rejection of the Jews, but as a fulfillment of the very thing Jesus had directed his disciples, uh, that, that they would be his apostles to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The other interesting part here is that Barnabas's visit is bookended on both sides by this great gathering, both in verse, in verse 21 and then again in verse 24, um, it seems as though there were some multiple gatherings that happened on either side of his visit. The final thing, which is helpful to be aware of, why send Barnabas? Why not send Peter after his experiences with Cornelius? And he'd already been kind of up that way in Joppa because this area is north of Jerusalem. If you're somewhat familiar with that area of the world and you think about how um, the landmass kind of loops its way East, uh, westward across the, the top of the Mediterranean Sea, Antioch is kind of snuck there right there in that armpit of that, that hook. So it's kind of as far north uh, before you start turning westward towards Greece and towards Rome. Well, Barnabas is a native of the very island to the west, to Cyprus. And so Barnabas is getting sent, presumably, to interact with people whom he already knows. In fact, pure speculation, but if we have men from Cyprus who have come into contact with the gospel, and we know of Barnabas, who's a native of Cyprus, who is one who proclaims the gospel, um, it's maybe not hard to imagine that maybe Barnabas has already in some way, whether it be through letters or a visit that's not recorded um, by St. Luke, to have had some interaction with some of these men He's, he's at least from hometown, and so he's going up and he's having these interactions as just a very natural ambassador because of his own um, nationality, if you will. Well, and that's, again, what we've been observing, right? So the Jews are going to Jews, the Hellenists are going to Hellenists, and when it's time to plant a new church, the they send someone from that area, someone with whom they have uh, uh, something in common to be able to to minister to them, to build up the church. It makes me think of the way that we do missionary work today overseas. And I'd like to talk about that, but 
we're right up against a hard break, so we're going to take that. Folks, do not go anywhere when we come back. Pastor Cox and I will keep on going through Acts chapter 11. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Um, I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Just, it's great to have you here on the program. I'm here today with the Reverend Joe Cox. He's the director, director of Curriculum and Education at Lutheran High School South in St. Louis, Missouri. Boy, I keep messing that up. Well, folks, Thy Strong Word is available to all of our amazing listeners in the St. Louis area on AM850. But you know what? I know that not all of you are in St. Louis. And if you are in St. Louis, you're probably wondering, well, how do they listen to the program? Listen, anybody can subscribe to this show using their favorite podcasting platform, or you can take advantage of KFUO's radio app. It is available on iOS and Android. You can listen on demand or live to all your favorite KFUO shows, and you can be in the word on your own time by listening live or catching up at your convenience at kfuo.org forward slash thy strong word. And also, if you want to chat or you want to share some thoughts or maybe you have some questions, I'm all ears. You can reach me by dropping me an email at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. I'm out there. Well, let's get back to the Bible. Uh, Pastor Cox, before we went to break, you were enlightening us about Barnabas and where he's from and his role in being sent by the Jerusalem church to help encourage this new church and the saints. Um, I've, I'm not, I've never been a professional missionary. Um, I've done a couple of short-term missions. I have some friends in Haiti. I kind of mentioned that, I think, at the top of the show. But I, one of the things that I've noticed just from the missionaries that I know and even from my very limited experience, that if you're going to establish a church or, or, or spread the gospel in an area— it's not it's not the wise thing to do to go in and bring all your own people and set it up and then run it for them. It's about training them to then go out and proclaim that word, for them to take ownership so that the people proclaiming the gospel to them, well, look like them, but not in a superficial way. As you know, I mean, it's from their culture. They can take the parables of Jesus and and maybe take them out of a Jewish context and put it in a a Haitian context or a Brazilian context or whatever. Um, I think that's so important. And I don't think it speaks against diversity, lest people get the wrong idea, because obviously a, a diverse church is also great. But I think it might explain a little bit about why, in general, congregations are, I don't know, they're kind of a little uh, segregated in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> 
of course, we could spend a lot of time talking about um, the lessons learned in missiology, especially in, in some of the earlier attempts um, with the spread of colonialism and so forth, where there is the melding together of culture and faith or culture and Christian teaching in such a way that they're treated as one and the same thing. And because of that, sometimes harm is unintentionally done by well-meaning individuals, whereas when we recognize that we're not really entering into the mission field uh, for the sake of being the people in charge or the people who have all of the answers, but rather being able to proclaim the gospel and be a servant to the indigenous persons to let the Holy Spirit work as he will in how the church manifests itself through his word and through his sacraments in that particular cultural situation. And we're there as guests, we're there as aliens, um, not just aliens of this world for Christ, but aliens who don't necessarily belong there um, full time. And so I think that's really important, again, within the context of the, the high walls of separation that existed at the time um, of these events between Jews and Gentiles, and I'm sure that that wall worked both ways, but those are huge barriers, and you need these innovative and cross-cultural um, ability, and that's not really well-worded, but people who have that cross-culture ability to be able to make that transition, but to allow the gospel to become something that belongs to the people of the area rather than just being an imported experience. Yeah, I don't remember where it was from, uh, but maybe maybe some LHF uh, material, but they were talking about, maybe it was a missionary that was speaking at one of the congregations that I uh, went to, but in any case, he was talking about going to certain places in Africa, and you you talk about translating the, the faith into their language. Um, in the scriptures, often we hear about um, light versus darkness. Uh, in this particular African culture, because they cremated those who passed away, they associated white and ash with death. Um, and so yes. there was a cultural misunderstanding that had to be bridged. And, and so I think that it's important that, you know, when you're proclaiming, whether you are a native of the of the place that you're proclaiming, or whether you're an outsider, it's important to understand that the diverse or or uh, diversity, I guess, that is the Christian Church, because it, it's extended to all people, um, isn't I think a natural thing. I think our fallen human will wants us to be uh, only comfortable around those who like us, right? We don't want the people with the tattoos around us, um, except maybe today when you know your barista has more tattoos than most convicts. <laughs> but at the same time, um, we see that when you are in the faith, it's kind of then that all the divisions melt away. It's then that the the faithful, say, Midwestern Christian can find themselves in a 
um, a faithful Lutheran congregation in the middle of Africa, and and they may not even understand the language, but they they know what's going on because they have this shared faith. Um, but before that, I think it is important that you equip the people of that community because of their connections, and I, and I think that's what I see going on here too. Uh, anything else before we move on? You know, just as you mentioned those experiences where you find yourself transplanted even for a short time, uh, what's interesting is when we allow our brotherhood in Christ to be the central quality, um, whether it be transcultural, transdenominational, what's interesting is the separations that we know exist which make us a little bit uncomfortable at times just because we like that, which is like ourselves. I mean, that's just kind of a natural thing we do. It almost makes the celebration of our unity in Christ more palpable, more exciting, and more energetic. Um, And I don't know how to quantify that experience, but it's one that I've had where when I get a chance to to be in the midst of Christians who aren't like me, whether culturally or or sometimes even, uh, like I said, if I'm in a, a conference that doesn't just draw from Lutheran Christians, um, it remind the, the the difference reminds me of a unity that transcends our sameness. Exactly. And I think that's a real powerful thing to experience. Well, this is slightly off subject, but just piggybacking on what you're saying, I think this is why it's very important as it is. Okay. I just, I have to do the disclaimer. It is crucially important that we uphold our Lutheran confessions and the clear teaching that we have of scripture. That's Absolutely. Important. Absolutely. With that said, I think more and more we need to celebrate our unity that exists with fellow Christians and, and befriend them in ways that we've never had to before because the culture is turning against us. And so a house divided can't stand. Well, there's always going to be divisions in terms of these interpretations of Scripture um, because of just that's how it is. At the same time, though, and this is why I participate in our local ministerium, um, it, it can be very uncomfortable sometimes. But as you just said, then we start talking about some of the basics of the faith and the, the lowest common denominator stuff, right, the things that all Christians believe— um, you just you feel so much more, at least I do, I should say, I feel so much more uh, connected to this reality that the the church is here, and of course we think we got it right. I hope if you're a Lutheran, you think the Lutherans got it right. Uh, otherwise, you're in the wrong spot. Right. But at the same time, I just think we need to celebrate our shared unity in more ways, in more appropriate ways. I'm not saying throw open the altar rails, but I am saying we need to connect with our fellow Christians, I think, more and more these days. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I appreciate the disclaimer, um, but absolutely, that's it's and it's something sometimes we can all be guilty of. It's it's easier to simply surround ourselves with the people who are like us, which is what started this entire conversation as the gospel uh, comes to start spreading at Antioch, and yet recognizing that the Holy Spirit, um, while calls us to truth in our worship. Um, is much bigger than sometimes we have the eyes to see. Well, let's uh, move on a little bit because it, it shifts gears just a tiny bit. Verse 25, it begins, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, 
and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Starting back with him running after to look for Saul, as we know, Paul now, in Tarsus. Um, he, he goes out and he finds this apostle and brings him to Antioch. What would you say the motivation is for Barnabas for reaching out to, to St. Paul? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a couple of things. We go, we go back again and recognize, as I mentioned, that Barnabas is the one who first goes out on the limb, really, and, and in an act of faith, where the apostles are concerned, Saul wants to meet with them as a trap to set them up so we can capture them. Barnabas puts himself in the crosshairs to see if, if this story about the great persecutor becoming one of the faith is true. And so on one level, I, I see Barnabas early on as kind of the patron of Saul, uh, almost a mentor in some ways, which we usually think about Barnabas as being the guy in the background. And that shift happens real early in the next couple of chapters. Um, and yet Barnabas seems to be the one looking out for Saul. And that's not in any way uh, neglecting the depth of Saul's spiritual trainings uh, or training at the hands of Gamaliel and so forth. Um, but what we have here, too, is, is knowing a little bit about Saul. So I, I described where Antioch is kind of in that top um, north eastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, Tarsus, you're going to head farther west. And Tarsus, in a sense, um, was really a crossroads-type town. So we, we know from Paul's own testimony that, that he was uh, raised as a Jew, he's of the tribe of Benjamin, but he's also not originally from Jerusalem. He's from Tarsus, which is this huge, uh, relatively speaking in the ancient world, a, a huge cosmopolitan area, um, among other things, um, I believe it was considered uh, like the third largest university equivalent that you would have in the ancient world, was located in Tarsus. And, and so Saul himself, in spite of his incredibly strong convictions about Jewish ceremonial law, that led to his initial rejection of Jesus as the Messiah is one who also has um, a lot of cross-cultural experience by virtue of where he grew up. Uh, while we know that he is a Jew, he's also a Roman citizen. Um, and so he is that natural cultural crossing person and so I think Barnabas, in a sense, sees an opportunity to take this man who is clearly gifted in his understanding of the Scriptures, whom Christ has specifically and radically set aside for a purpose of proclaiming his will to the Gentiles, which is what Jesus reveals to Paul or Saul at the time um, in chapter 9. And so Paul becomes the catalyst of transitioning Saul, sorry, Barnabas becomes the catalyst of transitioning Saul out of uh, kind of this hibernation period, for lack of a better word, and, and into the public ministry. And I almost wonder if Barnabas looked at this and said, hey, the time has come. This is what Jesus was talking about. The time for proclamation to the Gentiles is upon us. And again, 
it's interesting how when we have this this bookended structure of acts of Peter's the protagonist in the first part, Paul's the protagonist in the second part, and this middle part gets mixed up with uh, intermingled stories between Peter and Paul being the protagonists, that here again, what starts with Peter going to the church saying, hey guys, uh, the gospel's for the Gentiles too, and, and suddenly uh, the ministry's going out to the Gentiles in Antioch, and um, so the church wants to find out about it, and now Paul comes back into the picture because here's the natural transition. Peter opens up the door um, in sharing the revelation he received from God and his interaction with Cornelius and Cornelius' family. Um, but Paul becomes that main protagonist, even though he's still kind of in the background with Barnabas being, especially in our ears, the unsung hero. He's, mm-hmm. he's kind of the guy we forget about. Um, but it's kind of interesting how this humble guy he has to be for the way he steps aside to let uh this man that he seems to be mentoring kind of take the lead and take the credit um even though they give all the credit to christ and holy spirit of course um yeah so i think it's neat to see that just as jesus had said uh, hey i'm setting you apart for a purpose well now the purpose is upon us and saul it's wide open and uh tarsus isn't that far from antioch geographically speaking um and so it's time to come and teach. It's time to unleash what Christ has been preparing in this hibernation period where Saul has still been studying and learning and starting to see the scriptures uh, from the point of view of how centered on, on Jesus they truly have been from the beginning. Those who remember their history, of course, will recall when Barnabas and Paul you know, disagreed and they separated ways. Uh, later on. Uh, but here, you said something that really stands out to me, something I hadn't considered before, despite being in this word many times, um, and that is that Barnabas is kind of taking Paul under his wings. You always think of Barnabas as the sidekick, to use a, a, maybe a crass term, right? Paul's legacy kind of, and not that Paul would even enjoy this aspect, but it is re- real that he sort of overshadows Barnabas's role. And yeah, I don't think I've, I know I've never preached on it, but I don't think I hear about Barnabas very often. Uh, what a, what a fascinating thing to bring out. Yeah. And the interesting thing on there, and I'm looking for the specific text where this occurs, um, it's in chapter 13. And if I remember correctly, they're in Cyprus, which is Barnabas's hometown when the shift kind of happens. Um, well, I'll leave that for a later episode, but uh, to kind of keep your, it, and it's a very subtle kind of shift, um, but it's just kind of interesting how that occurs. And again, and, I don't it'll think be it's exciting. A, well, I was going to say, it'll be exciting to talk about that when we get to it, but just, just sort of throwing it out there right now. Yeah. It, it is, it also demonstrates though, that two strong men of God doing the Lord's work can still not necessarily see eye to eye. Yeah, yeah, and we do have that happen uh, when it comes to that split over Timothy. Um, But when that initially happens, I really do see that as men who are simply bending themselves to the will of God. They recognize that this ministry is not about them, and we don't have a sense of jealousy or anything else, but just this is the proper way for things to happen. And, And I think that's such an amazing thing to think about because I can't speak for the entire a listening audience, but I can speak for myself. 
I have those moments when the pride wells up and maybe I don't want to not be the guy who's in the forefront of things. Um, but to recognize that my role is to serve Christ where and how he's put me to serve, not necessarily to always be the person in the front, the person that gets written about. And that in part makes Barnabas such a hero to me um, because I just see this faithfulness of him. He um, has this moniker that's mentioned early in Acts about being the son of encouragement. And I think we see that here, not just in word, but also in deed. Do you like being called Lutheran? You know, it says right here, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Oftentimes when we think of uh, denominations, it's nice to have a title from which we can identify their particular confession. I think it's a a necessary thing. But every now and then you'll hear some really well-meaning people that say, well, I don't want to be called a Lutheran, I just want to be called a Christian, or I don't want to be a Baptist. In in fact, uh, um. I remember from my childhood, they changed the name of a church from like, you know, uh, you know, First Baptist Church to uh, First Christian Church or something like that to be a little bit more, uh, I guess, uh, inclusive of people who might want to come. And uh, one of the old men there said, well, I've been for, for 60 years, I've been called a, a Baptist. I'm not going to be called a Christian now. Um <laughs> So the point is, I do think names matter. It's important that you know the confession of the people with whom you're worshiping. Uh, but it, it is kind of a sign of the division, though, that we have all of these differently named church bodies. Yeah, and I think it's, it's very much, it almost gets into linguistic theory and not to get too academic or too nerdy. Um, being aware of how we're using the terms. Are we using them? as a shorthand way of sharing our confession. I am a Christian who accepts the mystery of of baptism as a means by which the Holy Spirit, through the word connected to the water, creates faith. I, I accept the mystery of Christ's true body and blood in, with, and under uh, the bread and the wine and the sacrament of the altar. If by Lutheran, that's what I'm, I, I'm saying. I'm, I'm distinguishing myself uh, by my specific confession of Christian faith. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, uh, it's a useful thing. If it becomes a means of division, if it becomes a banner of pride, if, it, if it's meant to distinguish um, not my confession, but who I am from other types of Christians, I think even well-intentioned, it can cause a sense of a lack of recognition of the unity that exists in the body of Christ. Um, And so it is that double-edged sword where it has a very powerful utility. Um, If someone were to come in and say, hey, we want to change the name of of your school and take the name Lutheran out, uh, I would Uh, be very vehemently opposed because it does say something about what type of Christian identity we have. Um, But we need to keep that in context. What gets interesting here is when the disciples are first called Christians, um, I've been really wrestling with this term on a couple of levels. And the first is, um, who's calling the disciples Christians? 
are the disciples calling themselves Christians as a way of marking them, as a way of giving shorthand for what they believe? Or is this a label that's being thrust upon them by other people for divisive means? Oh, those people over there are Christians. And it's almost taken to be derogatory. And as I've been wrestling with this text, I had never thought to consider it until preparation uh, for today's Bible study. But I do find myself um, a little curious about that because we don't have a whole lot of input about that. And as we trace the word, it really only appears in a couple other places in the New Testament. Um, It's used when Paul is being examined after he's arrested in Jerusalem. You know, would you make, you know, I, I feel that you would make me as you one of those Christians and almost has a derogatory context. Um, St. Peter uses the term in a positive way. So I, I still, I'm curious and I need to do some more investigation myself on how was this word originally intended? Yeah, and that's a question I have too. You know, I think about Lutherans. Um, certainly I believe it became a derogatory term, not even the preferred term of Lutherans. Lutherans, uh, we wanted to consider ourselves evangelical according to the meaning of that term then, but not necessarily the meaning of that term today. Right. So language certainly changes. I, I do think, though, that if it was derogatory term, I don't think it would be a derogatory term from the Jews because I just don't see them using— I guess it is in Greek, but I suppose I don't see them using— you know, the ter- the title of Messiah in a derogatory way. I, I th- if anything else, they'd be called who knows what. But um, but perhaps as they're going around telling everybody about the Christ, perhaps the Greeks, the unbelievers, are the ones maybe, maybe using it in a derogatory way. Uh, otherwise, yeah. it'd be called, you know, Meshiachans or something. <laughs> yeah, or even I think the term tend to be Nazarenes True, right? um, at times. Yeah, and, and not only that, again— is I'm trying to to trace the root of this word, and, and again, not to get too um, esoteric, but it almost seems as though there, at least it suggested that maybe there's some Romanizing that's happened here, so that the word itself, to some degree, Christos, of course, Christ in the Greek is, is definitely present, but maybe even a Latinization of the word has somehow formed this, which would suggest it's come from the Gentiles, um, as opposed to the Jews. Um, either way, getting at what's interesting is whether it was meant in a derogatory way or in a celebratory way behind it, you know, today we, we like to say, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian, a, a little Christ? Um, and I've really been wrestling with uh, the suffix here and, and, and trying to drive that, but what does it mean to be a little Christ? Um, well, it's interesting a tion, um in, in France is a small, flat kind of uh, frying pan cooking dish that, that the meal is served in. Are we vessels through which Christ is served to the people we encounter? I mean, what a great way to think about what it means to be a Christian, that, that here we are, the body of Christ, where Jesus is actually present in this supernatural way where when my hands serve, when my lips proclaim, ultimately it's 
Christ serving through my hands, through my lips, not because of any special ability or glory on, on my own, but because the Holy Spirit has grafted me into the body of Christ. I think that's something to definitely consider. And, and you know, while we don't maybe know exactly where this term comes around, I think it's also important that it is illustrating that there is a, enough of a diversion, at least in the eyes of either themselves or others, that this isn't a sect of Judaism, that this is, again, from an outsider's point of view, this is its own thing, right? The Jews who are faithful to Judaism and these new, I don't know what to call them, let's call them Christians, they are distinguishable enough that they get a new title. Um, again, we, of course, know, and the early disciples understood, that this is not a new religion, but a fulfillment of the one true religion. But from outsiders' point of view, yeah, I think it's probably about this point that we're being told, yeah, the church was its own thing now. Yeah, and we're going to see that t tension continue on, in a sense, because the Christians are still attempting to live under some of the liberties that the Jews were accorded by the Roman government that weren't necessarily accorded to other belief systems um, who were forced to do things like worship or uh, sacrifice incense uh, to the emperor as though he were a god. But yeah, it, there's definitely, in a sense, a transition here where the Jews are saying, yeah, they're not really from us. And the Gentiles are starting to recognize that we're not sure how the Christians are specifically different from the Jews, but there does seem to be a, a gap between them. Well, believe it or not, we are at the end of our program today. There's just a few verses we didn't get to, but no worries, folks. We'll pick it up tomorrow with Pastor John Lekomsky when he is on. But at this very moment, I'd just like to thank my guest, the Reverend Joe Cox, Director of Curriculum and Education at Lutheran High School South in St. Louis, Missouri. Brother, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed being a part of it. Folks, tomorrow we will finish up those few verses, and then we'll move into chapter 12, where the early Christian church is faced with now another cruel wave of persecution, this time by King Herod himself. Peter, one of the pillars of this burgeoning faith, finds himself shackled and imprisoned and cast into danger. But as he awaits his grim fate, the prayers of the church rise as one, a ceaseless plea to God, and in an extraordinary twist, Peter is miraculously delivered from his chains by an angel of the Lord. We're going to talk about that and lots more about faith and prayer in the face of tyranny tomorrow when we get back together. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.